Again, it's so great to be here with you guys this morning. Such a privilege and honor to be able to share God's word with you. And uh, more than that, it's just a privilege and honor to be such a part, a part of such a wonderful, uh, loving community here at The Rock. I love the people that I, I work with, that I'm privileged to work with on staff, and I uh, love sitting under the teaching of Pastor Ross, and he's got a unique a unique uh, communication gift, and sometimes it could be intimidating standing up here when he's usually up here because uh, we don't all communicate like him. So um, when I'm not trying to communicate like him, so you just get what you got, and that's all you get, okay? So you'll get Pastor Ross next week, and for now, it's just you and I. So here we go. Um, I wanted to share with you that this message is probably, in, in preparing messages, probably the hardest, not in terms of just figuring out what to say, but the hardest and just, um, you know, kind of facing this passage in my own life and um, how it kind of touches me so deeply. Um, as a new believer, I'll share some of my story with you um, uh, from back when I came, came to Christ and, and, heard, and read this passage for the first time. And uh, it's just an emotional, emotional um, roller coaster. I've had to distract myself and be busy doing other things while I've been thinking about it because of how... Uh, emotional, emotional this has been for me. So I did bring up some uh, Kleenexes up here, okay? I'm hoping I don't have to use them, but they are up here, but I just wanted to warn you in the first place. In fact, last night I was, I was moved just by thinking about how God has applied this passage in my life, and uh, I, was, I was weeping. I'll share a little bit more about that with you in a little bit. But my wife called me during that time. And I, she called and I'm like crying on the phone. It's like, what, what's going on? You just like left a little while ago and now you're crying at the office, you know? I know you have to teach tomorrow, but it's really not that bad, honey. You can, <laughs> you can, you, you got this, you know? So anyway, um, no, it was just, I was just moved by this passage. So I'm looking forward to getting into it uh, with you here as well. So at least some of you uh, have probably um, heard or familiar with the story of the woman, Corey Ten Boom. Mark Spence, who was here last week and did such a wonderful job sharing God's word with us, he, he shared several quotes from her last, uh, this last week when he was here, uh, and it stirred a reminder in my, in my heart about her life and work. If you don't know, Corey and her family were Dutch underground workers in Holland during World War II. They saved hundreds of Jews through various and desperate methods, including hiding them in secret chambers that were constructed for that purpose in their own home. After two years of operating under Nazi occupation, they were caught, and Corey and many of her family members were sent to concentration camps where her father and one of her sisters, Betsy, succumbed to the horrendous treatment and went to be with Jesus. Corey was held prisoner for about 10 months in physically and emotionally torturous conditions until she was released in 1944. Back in Holland, she opened a home to help victims of the war in concentration camps find healing. She preached the gospel and taught on forgiveness to the residents of the home and eventually to people all over the world. 
But what is most striking to me personally about her experience is the way in which God worked unimaginable transformation and forgiveness in and through her, despite her own acknowledged struggles with anger and hatred toward those who had so deeply hurt her and countless others. Her experience is recorded in several books. Probably the foremost is a book called The Hiding Place. Maybe many of you are familiar with it. You've read it. And um, it's a wonderful book. If you haven't read it, I highly, highly recommend it. It is amazing. Um, in fact, I wanted to insert a little plug here. We, uh, I got the opportunity to read this uh, out loud over the course of several weeks to just some people in the church casually. We have this little group called Fireside where we just sit with the fireplace on, the lights low, hot chocolate and popcorn, and I read out loud a few chapters uh, each week until we get through a book. And there's actually a movie, The Hiding Place, so we watch that afterwards. But um, we just choose books that are like Christian, uh, classic Christian novels. And so if you're interested in being a part of that, if we end up doing it again this winter, you can come and talk to me. I'd love to give you more information. But at one point in the end of the, the book, um, it talks about how at the end of a speaking engagement uh, where Corey was sharing at a church in Germany, uh, she met a former Nazi guard whom she recognized from a tor tormenting, tormenting experience in the concentration camp. She had just preached on the forgiveness of God, but when she met this man, she could not find it within herself uh, to forgive him until she remembered Jesus' words, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And so she was able to forgive much because she knew that she had been forgiven much. Jesus illustrates this for us in Matthew chapter 18. Let's turn there together. We'll also have it on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. And while you're turning there, I'm just gonna pray and ask God for his grace. Lord, thank you that you are so faithful, you are so gracious to us, and thank you for your word, Lord. Your word that teaches us about you and your plan of redemption for our lives. You, your rescue mission to bring us from death into life, to restore our relationship with you through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, and by simply placing our faith in him. Lord, your word is living and active. It's able to read us while we read it, and it's able to divide between the thoughts and intents of our hearts. We just pray now, Lord, as we read it together, that you would help us to understand it, and Lord, that you would help us to apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Matthew chapter 18 leaves us in a place where Jesus is, of course, doing ministry, and he's working with his disciples who uh, can be a handful at times. You know, I'm convinced that, uh, that Jesus probably felt at times like he had 12 kids that he was taking care of because a lot of times they were um, exposing, you know, their ignorance or their um, arrogance um, or their, you know, competition with one another in regards to who was the greatest. In fact, that's the beginning of Matthew chapter 18. And so Jesus, through his teaching and through his lessons and through his discipling of them, is constantly correcting their thinking and trying to put them on the straight path for um, what Jesus has come to accomplish, uh, not only in the world, but in their personal and individual hearts and lives. And so he talks to them about what the kingdom of God 
ought to look like in our hearts. So the Jews were expecting the kingdom of God to come and to be established physically. They were expecting freedom from the Roman oppressors. But Matthew answers the question of Jesus is the Messiah and he came to not, not to set up a physical kingdom, first and foremost, but to reveal that his kingdom is predominantly spiritual and in, internal in our hearts, that we have to be transformed from the inside out before we can experience his transformation in the physical world. And so that is the context here. And so part of that transformative work includes the deep heart work of forgiveness. And so he teaches at the beginning of verse 15 about what to do if somebody offends you. And then we pick up here in verse 20, 21 with Peter's uh, response and question. Matthew 18 and verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, Peter must have been pretty proud of himself because the rabbis only uh, required that you forgive somebody three times. So Peter's like, seven times, you know, that's four more times than three. That's pretty good, right, Jesus? And here's Jesus' response. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. In other words, you forgive and you forgive again and you forgive and you keep forgiving until it's complete. It's not just the number. This is the heart of God's work in our lives is to bring about full forgiveness and redemption in our situations. And so he tells this story, this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents, that is about a, several million dollars, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which relatively was a few dollars. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Those are heavy, heavy words. And at first glance, it may seem like God is calling us to an impossible task. And guess what? He really is. He's calling us to it and he's commanding us to it and he's demanding it from us but it also may seem like he's requiring us to do it in and of our own strength, and that's just not the case, and we'll unpack that together. 
Now, well, the purpose of a parable, first and foremost, is to tell a story within a story. Jesus used parables throughout all of his teaching, and he gave us a glimpse as to why he would use parables. He said, I want, he said that God's, part of God's work was to hide wisdom from those who thought that they were wise. In, in other words, if they were proud of heart, they wouldn't be able to understand spiritual things that God was teaching because they had a shroud of pride over their understanding, which limited them. But if they were humble of heart and were willing to listen to what God had to say to them, then they would be able to hear the story within the story. And for me, I know as a non-believer, I was challenged to read the Bible several years ago, and I read through Matthew, and it really didn't make much sense to me. I thought, well, there's a few good stories in here, you know, and I'll try to live my life that way, I guess, because they seem to be good things to apply. But I didn't understand that it wasn't just something that had happened a long time ago that was written down for me to read and to reflect on just, you know, in, in a historical sense, but that this was my story, that this was our story, and that God's word was living and active and that he could speak to me deep spiritual truths beyond just what appeared on the surface. And as I began reading the parables as a believer, they had an entirely different effect on me because I had come to the Lord with a broken heart. I had come to the Lord in humility and desperation, and he began to teach me and to show me what he was saying in his word. And so when we come to this parable, at first glance, it may seem like, wow, that's really harsh, God. That's really harsh and demanding. I mean, you're going to treat us the same way, throw us uh, in, in, to the jailers to be tortured until we pay back everything that we've owed. And that's what you'll do to us. The point of this in Matthew, which was written first to the Jews, was that the Jews were under the law and they thought that they could be good enough to obtain God's favor and to have everlasting life. And so over and over again, Matthew shows them, Jesus shows them that the bondage the, the yoke of the law was too much, too demanding for them to be able to live under. You think you can do it, and on the outside, it may appear to others that you're doing it, but you need something even more. That's why Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, guess what? If your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, then you're not gonna go to heaven. You have no part in the kingdom of heaven. He would say things like, be holy, therefore, as your Father in heaven is holy. Be perfect, as your father in heaven is perfect. If somebody reads this without having experienced the grace of God and the truth of his word coming into our hearts, and they might say, wow, that seems, uh, you know, that seems like uh, pretty demanding. Nobody's perfect. How could we do that? The point was is that Jesus was showing us that we could not do it and that we had a deeper need. We could not do it, but if we allowed him to and we humbled ourselves and we trusted him, then he would do it through us. Peter, you're not gonna, you probably won't even forgive seven times. But even if you do, that's not enough. You need to forgive until it's complete, until you're done forgiving, until there's nothing left to forgive. And then he uses this story as an illustration. When it comes to forgiveness, I kind of think about two categories. Uh, one category is the deep work of forgiveness that needs to happen in our hearts when maybe we've experienced years of feeling, you know, 
unforgiveness towards somebody just because of the nature of the relationship, things that they've done, things that they continue to do, and just the brokenness of that relationship. And usually it's with those that we really love and that we really want to love us. It's a little more difficult to be wounded, deeply wounded by somebody that we don't really love, right? Somebody cuts you off on the freeway. You're not thinking about that for the rest of your life. It's just, you know, a momentary, you know, well, that guy, you know, is a, is a jerk and whatever, you know, and you honk the horn and then you go to in and out and you forget all about it. But <laughs> the deep healing that needs to take place is usually around, involves those that we have close proximity and close relationship with. And so we'll talk about that in a moment. But there's another, there's another forgiveness that needs to take place that I think is obviously the starting point of that, of that deep forgiveness. And if we can m- maintain the starting point, then hopefully we could keep from having to have this issue of, of deep unforgiveness that needs to be resolved for the Lord. And so the first, the first, um, the first uh, type of forgiveness that I think um, Jesus teaches us to offer is regarding uh, isolated offense. So when some, somebody who you know, you're in relationship with or acquainted with uh, does something that you feel offended by and now it's broken that relationship, it's broken that communication, it's broken that fellowship, then that needs to be dealt with. And Jesus teaches us how to do that. And I bet probably almost all of us in this room are familiar with Jesus' teaching on this, but what I would wager to say is that most of us don't practice it on a regular basis. Let's take a look at it. It's in verse 15 of chapter 18. This is the context in which Jesus shares this parable with Peter. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, Jesus tells us how to handle conflict. He gives us the plan for conflict resolution. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter will, may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector, basically a sinner, somebody outside of, of the, the church fellowship, somebody who hasn't experienced um, repentance and, and God's um, and relationship with Jesus in that way. So these are the steps. He's listed out pretty simple. It's three verses. It's three steps to conflict resolution. Here's the problem. The problem is we usually skip the first step and go straight to the second or third steps. That's what we usually do. How many of you in this room, when somebody offends you, you just think, oh, great, I get to go and confront this person of what they did. I've been looking forward to this. That's the first thing I'm going to do. I'm going to go right there and confront this person. I'm, I'm so excited for this opportunity. Nobody does that. Even those of us who aren't necessarily you know, afraid of confrontation aren't comfortable with the feeling of having to go and confront somebody who's offended us or who we think has offended us. Nope, typically we go to the second step and we tell others about it. Or we go to the third step and we tell everybody about it. And yet this person who apparently offended you has no idea. And really, it's not fair to them that you didn't go to them first. You go to the other people first. They can't fix the problem. Who can fix the problem? It has to be between you and the person who offended you. And there's a few things 
that happen when we do these steps out of order. Uh, the first, well, let me just say this. When you go to do the first step, look at that line at the end of, uh, in the middle of verse 15. It says, just between the two of you. It has to happen just between the two of you. If, if you've been offended by somebody, then you need to take that offense and go to that person, not in front of other people. You don't tell other people along the way to go talk to that person. You go to that person and I think he includes those words just between the two of you because he wants, it, he wants to keep it right there. It's nobody else's business, typically. Now, if it involves other people, then that can be dealt with later, but it needs to be dealt with first and foremost with that person, just between the two of you. As I mentioned before, it's kind of unfair to the person who you have taken offense with if you're sharing it with everybody else and not with them, and they don't have the opportunity to either explain themselves or if they were intentionally uh, offensive to apologize and to repent. They don't have that opportunity. You haven't given them that opportunity. And I would say this, that when you, when we, when we take these steps out of order, then we often cause more damage than what was caused by the offense in the first place. And what happens is we implicate ourselves in causing just as much or even greater an error than this person caused against us. And so we need to be very careful to heed Jesus' words here to bring an offense, an apparent offense, to the person with which it started. How would you feel or how do you feel, because I'm sure it's happened to you, when you hear that somebody has been telling others about something they were offended from you about? And a lot of times it's a misunderstanding but you don't have the opportunity to clear it up. I know personally, I loathe, hate the idea that people are talking about me and something that I've done before it's, it's come to me and I've had a chance to address it or to apologize if I need to. And so I'm, I'm giving you an invitation right now. If I have offended you, <laughs> after service, you're welcome to come and talk to me. I think I'm a pretty reasonable person. I care about the relationship more than I care about whatever it was I offended you about. Um, I will say that if it's more than 25% of you, we might have to start making appointments. <laughs> so I can't spend all day apologizing for the things I've done to offend you. But the point of all that is, I think that all of us who have been touched by the love of Jesus and who desire to be in loving relationships with others would all say, come to me first, come to me. Now, maybe you've had people come to you and you're the one that's the, the two or three witness or the church, the one that they're telling. It's your job to say, wait a second, have you, have you talked to this person about that? Most times it's no. Oh, I just wanted to get some prayer or I wanted to get some advice. Uh, there may be places to do that. If you genuinely feel like, I don't know how to address this issue, you can go to a spiritual confidant, one person that you trust that's going to not go any further with it, that is objective in the situation and they can give you counsel in that. Hopefully they'll tell you to go through this process and maybe they'll give you some insight and steps on how to do that. You can do that, but if, if, you're, if you're hearing from somebody that they have a problem with somebody else, it's your job to say, hey, you need to go and handle that with them. That's not my business, but here's the problem. We love to hear the dirt. We love to hear it. Ooh, the words of a gossip. 
are like choice, cho- choice morsels that go down to an, a man's inmost being. We want to hear the news, but we can't. We have to say, no, no, that's not my information. That's not my concern. I don't even need to know about it. I bet it'll get worked out between you and them if you just go to them. So step one is taking it to the person just between the two of us in those, in those instances of isolated offense or a cluster of offenses or whatever it might be. I don't have to explain step two and three to you because we already do that pretty well. That's for another message. But I feel like if we can get this part right, it'll save us a lot of angst. It'll keep division from coming between us, whether it's in our family or in our workplace or even right here in our church fellowship. Division can come in just like that. And the enemy loves to take the opportunity when we have not applied the steps correctly to get in there and cause division. And you can stop him at the door when you take the offense and you go directly to the person who has caused that offense. That's what we must do. That's what Jesus has commanded. As I said earlier, oftentimes it's a misunderstanding. Oftentimes, in my experience, if somebody's, like, if somebody's been offended with me and I finally find out about it, I didn't even know. I didn't even know there was an offense. It was maybe the way I said something or it was body language or something like that. And eventually it gets back to me and I'm like, this has got to be cleared up. Like I, I, I'm willing to apologize. I didn't even know I wasn't trying to offend anybody. Typically, in my experience, that's been the issue. And right then and there, it could be dealt with. And there can be an apology. I'm sorry I miscommunicated. I'm sorry I gave that impression. It was a misunderstanding. Let's reconcile and move on. And then it's done. But see, if you've already talked to other people about it, now they know and, you, and this person shares with you, hopefully that person would go back then and share with others, you know what, it was a, I was mistaken, there was a misunderstanding or we worked it out and it's all good now. But you can avoid that entirely by just going to the person, person uh, in the first place. Now sometimes there's cases where that, that doesn't happen, where you haven't won your brother or your sister over, where they're not willing to repent. Maybe they have some hardness that they're dealing with. Maybe they're being deceived by some sin in their life that's keeping them from, from you know, acknowledging their error and, and coming and seeking reconciliation with you and repentance towards God. Maybe that, maybe that happens. But in my experience, most of the time, it's as easy as talking to the person and dealing with it. And we need to get over that fear. We need to get over that, really, that, that deceptive roadblock of taking that step, that first step that Jesus has given us in those cases. Now, if the person repents and apologizes, we must forgive them. We have to forgive them because um, that's the purpose of the process in the first place is to bring reconciliation. And without forgiveness, there can't be reconciliation. Now, sometimes maybe they won't repent and maybe they, the situation won't be reconciled. But even if they don't repent, we still need to forgive them. Well, you might say, well, wait a second. If I don't repent and turn my heart towards Jesus and ask for his forgiveness, then I can't receive his forgiveness. So why should I forgive somebody else if they offend me? Well, that's a good question. The answer is, is because they don't belong to you. They belong to him. They weren't created in your image. They were created in his image and they have to give an account to him and he's going to handle that. We see this illustrated in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 19. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, 
Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do you think God, by the word peace here, that God means just an outward peace, that, hey, you need to make it look like everything's okay, and you need to be cordial towards that person and let the actual social situation be peaceful? Is that the level of peace that God intends or wants? No, he wants it to be deep peace, peace that surpasses understanding, peace that brings freedom from the bondage of unforgiveness. So as far as it depends upon you, you must live at peace with everybody. Well, what does that include? It includes forgiveness, even towards those who haven't apologized, even towards those who haven't repented, towards those who haven't asked for your forgiveness. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. They belong to him, not to us. James illustrates this as well in James chapter three. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. The point there is in verse nine. We praise God with our lips. We lift our hands to him in worship. And then after the song is over, we remember the unforgiveness and bitterness we have towards somebody. And we go back to our little prison of bondage and we don't deal with it. How can we praise God, the one who made us in his image? How can we come to him and praise him for all that he has done for us when we are harboring unforgiveness towards somebody else? Jesus said, if you want to go and worship God and bring your gift to the altar, but you've got a problem with somebody else, put your gift down right there, right then and there. Go and fix the situation And then you can come back and pick up your gift and offer it at the altar. Because if you've got a problem with somebody this way, then we've got a problem this way. There's no ignoring that because they've been created in my image. If somebody offends your child or does something harmful to your child and then they're trying to be buddy-buddy with you, you think that's gonna work? If you know that somebody has offended one of your kids and they try to act like everything's cool between you and them, that's not gonna work. And God would say, you need to go fix this problem. Put your gift down, put your praise down, go and fix the problem, then come back. Just like we would say, listen, you've really really offended my child, my daughter, my son, and in that you've offended me. And so if you could please go and make that right, then everything will be good again between you and I. It's the same way for the Lord. They were created, we were created in his image and he owns us, it's his job to deal with their hearts of unrepentance and of sin. It's our job to forgive them no matter what so that we may live at peace with everyone. So let's put this process, these words of Jesus there in Matthew 18, verse 15 and following into practice. But then there's deep forgiveness, What about the kind of forgiveness that comes from years and years of brokenness and hurt between you and somebody you love? I mentioned earlier that 
we usually get hurt the most by people that we love the most. And sometimes it feels like love isn't worth the risk because if I'm gonna get hurt this much when I love, then I shouldn't just love, I shouldn't love at all. I'm gonna put walls up. I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm not going to be transparent. I'm not going to let that person harm me anymore. And then what we do is we put those walls up around our hearts in any situation, in any relationship, and it becomes our own personal prison. So what do we do when that happens? I remember um, having heard something that somebody said through another person, somebody that I, I, I had loved tremendously and spent a great deal of time with, and somebody who knew them shared with me uh, something that this person had said about me. And I couldn't sleep. It was tearing me up. I loved this person so much. I'd spent so much time in ministry uh, with them. And I couldn't sleep. And I remember, and the Lord, I just, I just felt the Lord speak to me this truth. And I got up and I wrote it down. And the reality is that with love, we take risks. And this is what I, I heard and what I wrote down. If if you love broken people, you're bound to get cut by the pieces. And so if you're going to love somebody who's broken, which is all of us, to some degree, maybe some manifest, some degree it manifests more than others, but to some degree, we're all broken people, and those who are broken that we love, we have to be willing to get cut by the pieces of their brokenness. This passage in particular, I think I mentioned earlier, it was a doozy for me when I came to it as a new believer, 23 years old, reading God's word for the first time um, with the ability to discern spiritually what God had to say to me. And I was so thankful for God's forgiveness. I had received his forgiveness. I was, you know, I was living the life. The proverbial ton of bricks had been lifted from my shoulders. I was set free from sin. I was set free from the penalty. Even I had, you know, things were changing in my life. God was cleaning my life up from the inside out and everything was good until I came to this passage. I read this parable and God revealed to me that I had deep in the recesses of my heart, severe unforgiveness, and particularly towards one person who I was close with, and I was still being controlled and influenced in a lot of ways by that unforgiveness. It was the type of relationship and the type of unforgiveness that either directly or indirectly controlled almost every element of my life, the decisions that I made, the things that I did, the way that I thought was all ensnared, was all in bondage to the, the reality of my unforgiveness and the brokenness of this relationship. And when I read this passage, I was cut to the heart and I realized that God didn't just want me to receive his forgiveness. He wanted me to experience his forgiveness to the depth that I would be able to share that forgiveness with others. And this is part of the impossibility of this task, of this passage. 
it seems impossible and Jesus, I believe, makes it sound impossible for a reason. Because when, when, when God revealed this situation or the reality of unforgiveness in my heart through this passage, I realized I couldn't do what he was commanding me to do. God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for all that you have done for me. I sense that you are telling me to offer forgiveness in this situation, and I can't do it. I cannot. But God did that deep work of showing me how much, how deeply he had forgiven me. How could I hold a grudge against somebody who hadn't offended me, who hadn't sinned against me even nearly as much as I had offended God and sinned against him. I don't deserve not to be offended. I'm an offender. I offend people. I deserve to be offended. Jesus was innocent. He did not deserve to be offended. He did not deserve to carry my sin, my offense to the cross and to bleed and die for me. When I share the gospel with people, I share what I, something I learned from Living Waters, Ray Comfort, Mark Spence, just because I think there's power in, in making a tangible case for what our relationship and separation with God looks like. And so we talk about having broken God's law. That's what sin is. A lot of people think that they're not sinners because they don't understand what sin is. Sin is simply breaking God's law. We broke his law. And it's not just a law that he made and said, oh, this sounds like a good list of rules. Let's go with that, and please don't break that. It's out of his nature. It's who he is. He's holy. God never lies. Therefore, he says, you shall not lie. God doesn't covet. Therefore, he says, you shall not covet. God doesn't, God doesn't uh, um, steal. Therefore, he says, you shall not steal. It's all out of his nature. But I have lied. I have stolen. I have committed adultery in my heart. I have committed murder through the hatred of my heart. I've broken all of God's laws and I am a criminal. And they say, Ray Comfort says, if you sin, if you break God's law just five times a day, which is probably pretty conservative, <laughs> we could do more than that without even thinking about it, probably. And this is why God's grace is so good. If you sin just five times a day, you break God's law just five times a day. In a year, you would have broken God's law 1,825 times. And if you lived to be 70 years old, you would have broken his law over 127,000 times. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. We're gonna stand before God and give an account for the way that we lived and we have to answer for all the crimes that we've committed against God. Can you imagine having 127,000 crimes, a rap sheet that's probably 40 miles long and having to answer for each of those crimes? That's probably a small number compared to what has actually gone on. Yet, God himself, the holy judge, was willing to take the penalty that I deserved for each and every one of those crimes and place it upon himself. And the holy judge declared himself guilty for the crimes that I committed. How could I not extend forgiveness towards those who have offended me, who have hurt me? How could I not extend forgiveness towards this person in which our broken relationship and my unforgiveness had imprisoned my life? But I couldn't do it. I still couldn't do it. 
Even with those numbers, even with those facts, I couldn't do it. God, I can't do this. I can't. How do I, how, where do I go from here? I can't. You're telling me to, but I can't. Where do I go? Trust me. Trust me and follow me. God, I want, I want to forgive and I want to be, I want to love this person. I want to be loved by them. How do I do that, God? This is an actual conversation I had over the course of several weeks as a new believer having come to this passage. Lord, I know you've forgiven me of so much. How do I do this? Do you want their love? Yes, I want their love. His still small voice. I want you to love them the way that you want them to love you. I know it was God because those were not my thoughts. I would never think that. I didn't want to have anything to do with that. And so I made excuses. Well, God, I don't know how to love. Nobody taught me. God's still small voice. I'll teach you. God, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of rejection. I'm afraid of of not getting love in return. I'm afraid that I will be despised and rejected. God's still small voice. I'm not promising that you won't be rejected, but I promise that I will be there with you if and when you are rejected. God, it's just, it's just not fair that I have to show love to somebody that I desperately want love from. It's not fair that it has to be one-sided. God's still small voice. It's been like this for so many years. Do you think it's going to change on its own? Do you think one morning you're going to wake up and that person's going to realize all that they've done to hurt you and they're going to come to you and ask for your forgiveness? Maybe they will. And we can pray for that. But we can't count on it. It's outside of our control. And so I said, God, I do want it to change. I guess if I can trust you with my salvation and the forgiveness of my sins, I can trust you in this situation. Show me what to do. And so the next time I was around this, this person that I had harbored so much bitterness and unforgiveness towards, I tried to engage in some awkward small talk. I tried to be cordial. I tried to not show how much I, how much bitterness I had towards them. I tried to not ignore them. I tried to be interested. I tried, it was awkward. It was clumsy. And at the end of our little conversation, it was time for me to go. And I said, okay, I'm gonna take off now. And a little pause. I just, want you, I just want you to know that I, I love you. And as soon as I said that I knew it was coming and I was ready to just shrivel up into nothingness and cease to exist because I knew there was gonna be rejection, there was a brief pause and the reply without, any, without looking, at, looking at me or anything was just, okay. And in the brief pause, while I thought I was going to cease to exist, I just thought, this is it. This is it, God. See how to, 
my mind was going a million miles a minute. And I was like, see God, I knew this was gonna happen and look what's happening and it's happening and there's nothing I can do to stop it now. And here comes the hurt and the pain and the bitterness and the unforgiveness and the regret for even having said that to this person in the first place. But when they said okay, it was like the Holy Spirit in the back of my mind or the back of my heart. It was like he said, okay, you're gonna be okay. And in that moment, it didn't matter. God had changed my heart. He had set me on the path to forgiveness. And since that time, he's brought about some great reconciliation between me and them. There's still ways to go, but God has proven that he is faithful to his promises and he's led me through that process. I wanted to share, as we wrap up here, a passage from this book that I shared with you earlier, The Hiding Place, because it, when I read this years after becoming a Christian, it just brought this to mind again and I thought it was so powerful uh, because it's my story. I can imagine having gone through what Corey Ten Boom went through. My story is nothing compared to hers, but in some way, it's still my story. I mentioned earlier that she had met after a speaking engagement, uh, a guard that she had recognized from the concentration camp. And so she talks about that a little bit here. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück, which was the concentration camp she was in. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. I'm going to get there, just a moment. I had to read this out loud six times last night, and it took me a half hour to stop crying because I knew... Uh, that I was going to do this to me. So I had to practice. Just a moment. Okay. Okay, here we go. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in Blomendal, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me. I saw the sin of them. Jesus had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing not the slightest spark or warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. 
give your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. Okay, made it. It's powerful stuff. You gotta read the beginning of the book to know what's going on there completely. But I, I would wager that just like with me, a lot of you share the same story in some capacity. We all struggle with the brokenness of relationship and unforgiveness and bitterness. Whew, made it. Um, if anybody wants this as a souvenir, you're welcome. <laughs> Jesus, uh, Paul's hanky sometimes had healing powers. I can't promise the same thing. I can't guarantee that. But if you want it, it's right here for later. God is so good to us. And he's revealed that not only through words, but in deed. And he calls us to do the same thing. It's impossible. We can't do it. He makes it sound impossible in his word because it is impossible. We do not have it within us to forgive we're too broken. We're too sinful. We're too prideful. Yet, he commands and demands that we do. So how is this possible? Only through the spirit of God and only through the truth of his word. His word shows us what's wrong as it did in the case of my having reading, read through this as a new believer. But it not only shows us what's wrong like a mirror. See, the great thing about a mirror is you can see the good, you can see the bad, you can see the ugly, but the bad thing about a mirror is it has no power to fix you. Oh, is that a pimple on my nose right before prom night? <laughs> Thank you, mirror, for revealing that to me. <laughs> but see, the word of God, the perfect law of liberty, the perfect mirror, not only reveals to us the issue, but also gives us the power to resolve the issue as well. And so we need to remember when we struggle with unforgiveness that it's a prison. As Mark mentioned last week, unforgiveness, bitterness, it's like, it's like taking poison and hoping that the other person will die. It's not going to work. It only imprisons you. It only makes your life miserable. You know when you've battled with unforgiveness or bitterness, you know how miserable that is. And not only are you miserable inside, but people can tell when it's deep, it comes out and there is no joy. There's not the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that God wants to bring forth in our life. But if we're not willing to address the issue of unforgiveness, then he's not able to bring that fruit from our life because there's a blockage, there's a separation. There's a brokenness. And so I want to encourage you today. Sometimes it's easy to forget out of sight, out of mind. I don't see that person. I'm living my life. I'm ignoring them. I'm ignoring the situation. 
it's going to come up again. And how do we do it? It's really simple. There's two steps. One, you take the first step. I know that sounds funny. The first step is to take the first step. What do you do? You take their hand, like Corey Tim Boom. You say, I just want to tell you I love you. You do the thing that's impossible and watch God make something that's impossible possible. Just like the man with the withered arm. Stretch forth your hand. I can't. It's withered. I can't even move it. Stretch it forth. And it's healed. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I'm going to close with the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter, 5, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. If the Apostle Paul says this, then it applies to all of us. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I owe God millions of dollars compared to the few dollars that are owed to me. I am the worst. I am the chief of sinners. But listen what he says. For that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. And then he just can't help but praise God. You read in his letters, he expresses God's mercy, his acknowledgement of God's mercy and grace to him, and then he just has to burst forth in worship and praise. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We are not able to forgive because we find it within ourselves to do that. We're not able to overcome sin because it's within ourselves. All we're able to do is just humbly surrender ourselves and our situations and our brokenness to Jesus. And when you do that, he will take care of it and he will take care of you. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for speaking the truth and love to us, the truth that sets us free. Oh, it hurts, God, when we hear it sometimes. We love to hear the part about how much you loved us. We love to hear the part about all the promises that you have for us. But Lord, oh, the, the pain that comes from hearing the truths about our own brokenness and that you love us so much and you love us too much to leave us the way we are in our own personal prisons of sin of unforgiveness, of bitterness. God, you desire to set us free and that's why you give us your truth. You said it, the truth will set us free and we'll be free indeed. Thank you for the freedom that comes from knowing you, from hearing your word and from having the ability by the power of your spirit to put it into practice. Thank you for the restoration and the reconciliation that comes from doing what you've said to do. Thank you for that promise of blessing that as we put your word into practice, we will see you and your faithfulness to your promise. Help us, Lord, to put your word into practice. Help us to resolve conflict the way you told us to resolve conflict. Help us, God, to seek that deep forgiveness from you and to be able to share it with others. We give our lives to you. Lead us, Lord. Help us to love you and to love each other. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. You have been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.